people do get attached to their houses, but when you look at it, you're just temporary in there. Nobody's going to live there forever. You never know, once you die, <laughs> it's so when you start getting emotional about it, you have to think that there were people before you and there'll be people after you. It's not yours, really. You're just a guardian. You're just taking care of the asset for a while. That's true. And then it goes on That's to true. another person. That's why when we work on the house, we try to do it in a quality fashion. We don't want to just slap repairs here and there because it's going to live on, you know. And so there, you are just a steward of the property. Hey, everyone. On this episode, we talk with Seattle property owner investors, Irena and Doug Baker. While this is an important conversation specific to the controversies of Seattle housing, it wades into some universal questions for everyone that lives in the USA. Together, we talk about generational wealth, what it means to invest in property, neighborhood revitalization versus gentrification, relationship of renter to landlord, and more. So hope you enjoy. Yeah, I'm Doug Baker and uh, my wife, Irena Baker, and uh, on the top topic, we became landlords in uh, 2006. Yeah. Um, when, when we bought uh, we bought three buildings at one time uh, from Irena's aunt Josie, and who was getting too old to manage them, and um, so we, the total we had was. Uh, 23 units. We had 23 units in those three different buildings. What made y'all decide that you wanted to purchase these properties from Arena's aunt? Uh, we were looking for investment. You know, we had, we, we had other investments, but uh, we wanted to diversify. And uh, at the time, the children were, had already started driving. I think the youngest, Gordon, had started driving already. So I wasn't, I was the, I was the Mr. Mom for the family while Arena was working. So when he started driving, you know, I had time on my hands, and then the, the opportunity came up, and uh, stars kind of lined up in a way, and so we we uh, decided to take the plunge. Hey, I'm going to jump in real fast, because Connor has this great privilege of knowing more about y'all than I do, um, but I'm kind of in the position as a lot of our listeners where I don't. And so I'd love to hear, first of all, a little bit about both of yourselves. Like, are you from Seattle? What brought you to Seattle? How long have you been here? Well, uh, we moved to Seattle in 1992. And uh, we met in Kentucky. I came to Kentucky in my uh, when I was for the graduate school from Croatia, so I'm an immigrant. And uh, Doug is was born in Kentucky and uh, went to school there and finished engineering school. And I finished uh, graduate school in orthodontics. And uh, we had kids in Louisville, Kentucky. And in 92, we, I purchased the practice in Seattle and we moved to Seattle. And uh, ever since we lived in, in the neighborhood where the, close to where the practice is and family life evolved around living here, working, and um, Doug was uh, helping with family and business and we prospered from there on. What neighborhood do you live in? I just asked because Seattle is, of all the places I've lived, it's so neighborhood centric. And so it's one of those interesting things we always ask each other to help place so many things. So what neighborhood do y'all in, live in, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, we live in Mount Baker neighborhood, okay. which is uh, south, south Seattle. 
and we all, and the practice was in Columbia City, which is considered the most diverse, uh, uh, most diverse zip code in U.S. at least at that time. So you've probably seen everything change a lot over since you moved here in the '90s, yeah. Yes, we have. Yeah, Columbus City was kind of the Wild West in the early 90s. So there was a lot of gang activity and um, the uh, revitalization of Columbus City didn't take place for another 10 years or so. So it was it was kind of uh, interesting, edgy. And then Hillman City, which is one neighborhood south, it's only a half a mile south. I mean, we didn't even go there. Hmm. It was like it was so far out that now, now Hillman City is... It's kind gentrified. of revitalizing and getting better. You know, the whole city has seen this revitalization, you know, like Ballard's face, Fremont, you know, the whole city's done it. Uh, one of the conversations we've had with several people is this idea on gentrification and what it is and realizing that people define it differently. And I've heard both of you say, I heard when you were talking, one of you said revitalization and one of you said gentrification. And so I'm curious what the difference between revitalization and gentrification is, like according to how you've experienced it. I would use the terms as the same. Revitalization is that people are moving in and and fixing up the properties and uh, improving them and uh, and and the subsequent uh, result is uh, increased property values. There's just more people want to be in Seattle, more people in Seattle with money, and uh, they need to be somewhere. I mean, you're, you're seeing property values all over the city going up because of that. So. That sort of thing, that sort of phenomenon had happened in other neighborhoods in the city. And I think the south, the southern area like we're in was one of the last areas to to be, I wouldn't say discovered, but for people to go to because the property values were still low, on, mm-hmm. you know, on average. I've heard in the 60s that um, the, the Mountain Baker neighborhood proper, all these nice big houses here was, was uh, there were a lot of empty houses here in the 60s. So housing and urban development owned a bunch of the properties. They took them over. I don't know how that worked, but that's what I've heard. And so the whole, this whole neighborhood overlooking the lake was even, you know, the prices were real low and they were unkept. And, uh, and so, and that's, that's all changed in the last 20 years. So this is a question that I'm really interested in because I'm looking, I'm 39 and I'm looking at purchasing a home and I'm having this conversation with my parents. And so I'm really interested in talking to people that are in their same age, but this idea that they're like, you know, we bought a house around this time. And I'm like, but I'm not making as much money as you were according to how high the the costs are, right? So like the idea that, Uh, property values have increased so much faster than income levels have. And so this idea of even for me, I started looking at buying a house about a year ago. And I was looking in North Carolina thinking about maybe that's a house I could rent out and then move to later because it was significantly cheaper. And just in one year, the prices of the house is almost doubled. And I had to stop looking because I couldn't afford them anymore. And that's just the last year. And so then I'm sitting there going like, whoa, I make a decent salary you know, I've been saving, I have a down payment, and I can't even afford to like, there's nothing for me to look at. And so it's become this really interesting conversation of I don't remember my parents at my age struggling that hard to be able to purchase a property. And so I'm curious, like, what you've seen, not just with the property values increasing, but also that ratio of people's abilities and younger generations to actually purchase homes. I I think your experience is probably very common. And, um, if you're looking for reasons why that is, I, I, I don't really know. There's lots of speculation, but there's no way to really know. The Seattle itself is, has so many jobs. The job market here is so strong that people come from all over to work here. And uh, 
that creates demand. Uh, how they can justify or make this all work, I don't know. I mean, people are, I mean, you go into debt, you go into huge debt on these mortgages and stuff, and uh, you you kind of roll the dice and take a chance, you know. And But that's always the way it's been. I know when we bought our first house in Louisville, it was it was a little bit scary, you know, and, and that was in 1984, you know. Everybody I talked to when I was going through that, they said, well, you know, the, the value is going to just keep going up. And, and I found it hard to believe in 84. It still appears to be the case. Now, I, I don't I don't know the answer. You, I think you for us, uh, I felt like uh, you had to kind of rely on your income stream. If you felt confident in your income stream and you could gather the down point payment together. And you wanted to be in that area. You wanted to be in that neighborhood or that city or that region for some period of time, you know, into the future. Then, then it's worth it's worth it to take the take the plunge. The one thing I, when you think about prices of housing, they're very high. And but one thing that it's different than, let's say, when we bought the house, what was the interest rate then? Twelve percent or something? Oh, right. Okay. So, wow. and you, which is huge, twelve yeah. percent. Yeah. And, and now that's less. And that also yeah. drives the prices up because right. interest rate is so low that they know whatever, when they're pricing the houses, they are squeezing maximum price they can get in light that your mortgage will be X amount of dollars. So if you interest rate is low, the prices of housing even go higher. And, and then maybe that's why they're not necessarily keeping mm. up with the income. Yeah, there are. You're right. There's like a statistic around it of this idea that like if the price of houses increased at the same level wage was increasing, then houses would be around like uh, like an $800,000 house would be around $200,000 right now. But I think you make a really interesting point. But because the interest rate is so low that the prices of housing are going up. And I've heard people a lot of people say that where they're like, well, it's all about your interest rate. Who cares how much it is eventually because you're going to sell it, flip it, et cetera. Which also drives the market up is when you have people buying their second, third or investment properties versus their first home. But it also does this interesting thing where once the price of the house doubled, I no longer could qualify for a mortgage because my my income to ratio changed, right? So houses that I could put uh, offers on, suddenly I can't put an offer on that exact same house anymore, that same size in that same area. And it just kind of takes you out. So I'm interested what will happen when they increase the interest rates over this next year, what's going to happen to the value of these houses and properties? Anytime you increase the uh, interest rate, the value of assets that are used as income producing, uh, the value of that asset would go down. That's a truism in the, in the investment world. If you buy a bond that pays 5%, but then the, then the and you want to just go and sell it, you paid 10000 for it and you want to go to sell it and interest rates went from 5 to 6%, the value of that bond won't be ten thousand anymore. It'll be eight and a half. I mean, that's just that's the way the math works, and it's the same way with houses, especially investment income. I mean, investment properties. I'm also curious about this, and this is a really personal question, so you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But I'm curious: Are you planning on leaving your property to your children? That is an idea that yes, we've we've entertained. The big the big issue with that is: um, Will they be able to afford the maintenance? You'd hate to give somebody a house and then they can't even afford to keep it up. It would be a white elephant. It would be a burden. It's not really a responsible thing. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look not only at the value of the asset you're conveying, but you have to look at the operating costs. Mm -hmm. and property taxes are so high. 
that taxes, maintenance, utilities, you know, that's, there's all insurance. There's all these fixed costs that you have to pay just to own a property, just to be there. And if our children wouldn't have the income to support that, then it doesn't, maybe it's not the, the right property for them. But you talked, the maybe question was of investment property, not necessarily just living. She's, I thought you said house. Well, no, any properties. I mean, I think it's interesting. It's something that I'm curious about because you hear a lot about how there's going to be a great shift of wealth distribution in the next like 20 years as people that own properties leave their properties to their children. Um, and then children where their parents don't own properties, there'll be a huge shift between like class difference at that point. And I hear a lot of people have different opinions on whether or not they're planning to do that or not and how that will impact not only their kids. Like I know people who want to leave their businesses and their investment properties to their children, but their children don't want them because they don't want to be in that same business. And so they're having to look at selling. And then there's people who are just planning on passing all that stuff down. So yeah, I, I was asking on a specific level, but also on a, like a, a bigger level of what you were thinking about in your own life. Well, I think the investment properties are, have been successful and uh, it's, it's something that we can control in a certain way, you know, because we're the owner, we're sitting there looking at the building and we can say, you know, what it looks like, what color to paint it, who do we have in there? Mm -hmm. And uh, the alternative would be to take your uh, investment funds and put them into some a more indirect investment like the stock market or other assets that are that basically go to New York. About kids. But as far as as far as uh, letting the kids have an investment property, yes, it, it kind of surprises me that they're not that interested. To my way of thinking, it's it's a good investment. Like I said, it's bricks and mortar that you can touch and feel and look at, and uh, you're you're directly in charge. And that's a good thing. And uh, it allows you to express yourself through the investment and dealing with the tenants, dealing with the maintenance people that you hire. It's a, it's a nice dynamic. So I think it's a fulfilling thing. And But, you know, the kids, they have their own ideas about how they want to spend their life. And, uh, and I can see that too. So You talked about what it means to for your kids who inherit your house. We got like the investment side, but I was curious, what is the home side of that? Like, how do you negotiate the both the emotional side and the financial side of your properties? Well, I mean, there definitely is an emotional side. and But, it's you know, we bought this house when I was 40. And so it's not like, for example, Lucy, who grew up in this house. So I'm assuming she would have more of an emotional attachment to me uh, than me. But I don't know. It's hard to really get a, a good answer out of her on that. And um, in the end, it is just an asset. And if it needs to be sold, it'll be sold. You know, it's just another thing. You know, life doesn't go on forever. And every once in a while, you need to make a change and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's fun to kind of have this emotional thing about it and history and all the good times, you know, the good ghosts that are floating around here. But, you know, in the end, it's still just a, a house. And you can move on to another emotional attachment to a house. <laughs> well, people do get attached to their houses, but when you look at it, you're just temporary in there. Nobody's going to live there forever. You know, once you die, <laughs> it, it's, it's so when you start getting emotional about it, you have to think that there were people before you and there'll be people after you. It's not yours, really. You're just a guardian. You're just taking care of the asset for a while. That's true. And then he goes on That's to true. another person. That's why when we work on the house, we try to do it in a quality fashion. We don't want to just slap 
repairs here and there because it's going to live on, you know, and so there, you are just a steward of property. It kind of gets back to what you said earlier, the tending to your capital. Because for me, like relationships are like everything in life. It's just interesting that one, you can have a relationship with capital, but like, how does that also impact your relationships with between you two and between you and your family? How does actually your house facilitate all this? How is it a part of that? Because it is much more than just an asset too. Even beyond, I think it's influenced by this idea of ownership. Like I was thinking when you asked that question, Connor, my parents, we grew up without any money and we were renters. And I think I counted that I've lived in 64 houses. um, And that was like five years ago, you know? And so, and my dad was in the military. We changed every year. My parents didn't buy a house until after I graduated college. That was the first time they bought uh, their own house. And so because I moved every single year of my life, I don't have an attachment to houses, but I have an attachment to my family. Like we were very attached to each other because I was, we moved schools every year. I was a new kid literally every year of school. And so the only person I knew in the whole school was my sister. But also I I get that feeling of home at the airport actually, because growing up and moving, the only consistent place I was ever in was the airport. And so when I go to the airport, I feel this like, oh, I'm home. Um, and so even the idea of whether you own or rent changes your relationship to the house itself because it wasn't ours. And so I knew it was even more temporary, whereas like my parents now own and I think they have a much more attachment to a feeling of home with their house because it's theirs. Well, if you can own, generally speaking, it's better because you have some sense of control. You don't have all this apprehension that you talked about. We recommend it. Yeah, so I I just heard from another investor owner who has a house that she actually likes to, or in in the past, has enjoyed giving her space to people who are in dire straits. Usually it's women who have been in domestic violence situations, and she wants to be able to give them affordable housing. But she has found that there are new ordinances in Seattle that make you have to accept the first applicant no matter what, or at least like there's only so much you can do to reject the first applicant, which is actually really difficult. Has that been in your experience? Do you know what laws I'm talking about? Yes. I mean, they did that a few years ago. Uh, I think the city council did that. And there was a court case against that. And I think that rule was rescinded. But then I think there was a a resurgence of that rule. So I, I don't really know. I've Since we sold the pro- two of the properties in 19, I kind of I kind of quit paying attention to a lot of the those topics. Uh, we only have six units right now, and they're long-term tenants, and so I don't have a lot of turnover like I did previously. It's it's kind of chilling when you have a property and the government tells you who you can or can't have in your property. Obviously, if, if, if the landlord has complete autonomy, then there is... A, a situation for discrimination, you know, well, I don't like the color of your car, so you can't rent here, I'll find somebody else. But um, I think the law is that the first qualified applicant, you have to choose the first qualified applicant. So then they said, well, what's a qualified applicant? So, well, you have to, before you even put the property on the market, you have to have a list of qualifications that you need to be a qualified applicant. So you have to sit down and write up what you want and what you don't want for a tenant. And I suppose there are some limits on that too, but you, they want you to do that so that you can be fair. Everybody has the same measuring stick, whatever that is for you. Like no smoking. 
if you have no, you have a no smoking policy. I mean, that's that's legitimate, and that discriminates against smokers. But if you state that policy uh, up front for all your applicants, then I think they consider that fair. So would you be opposed to stricter rules? I mean, you said that you've kind of not followed it, and I'm not really sure where they are, but I'm interested in this idea of with city council saying that if you own a property, should you be able to rent to whoever you want to versus having stricter rules and guidelines? And I'm curious how you both personally feel about that rule being implemented in Seattle? Most people who are in this world don't like restrictions from the government. The government, it's a third party, you know, you're, you, as a landlord, you're, you're having a relationship with your tenant and you don't, you don't want a third party in, injecting themselves in that relationship. But obviously there are landlords who, who don't operate in a fair and proper manner. And there's a reason why you have some sort of government regulation or whatever. I mean, I can see that. So there's a, there's a balance there. And where that is, I don't know. But uh, I think it was chilling for a lot of investors to have the government say, you know, you have to take the first one. Uh, my experience in general is if they indeed meet my requirements, I would take the first one, you know. I mean, if they meet my requirements, then if they're going to pay and take care of the property and get along with their neighbors, then you take the first you take the first one that meets that because then you can go back to your life. You know, <laughs> you've got somebody in there and they're paying and that's good. The climate feels really different now, but I remember I lived in Ballard when I first moved to Seattle eight years ago. And I lived, so I'm a single mom, but at the time I was living with my sister and her kid and my kids, so there are four of us. And there are three different situations where we were renting and we were kicked out because they wanted, like the first one was we were in like one of the last affordable apartments in Ballard. They kicked everyone out because they wanted to renovate them. And they just changed like countertops and appliances and they doubled the rent. And then so we moved into a house and two more times the landlord, we kept trying to get like a two year lease. They wouldn't sign it. They guaranteed they wouldn't sell it. And then we got kicked out of both of those because an investor came in and was like, hey, we want to buy your house for 80 grand more. And I'm kind of like, I don't blame you for wanting to sell that process. We ended up living in our we had to live in our friend's attic with the kids for about five months because we every day were trying to that was like a crazy point for renters. And it's really changed since then. But we would go to every single house and we'd show up with our rental application filled out, wouldn't even look at the house, but would like run in and give it to them. And there'd be 50 other applicants and we just could not find a house. And so there were, I think during that period, and also we spent so much money on rental application fees because we didn't even look and then we didn't get chosen. And then um, what we ended up doing is I think there were three different times where we got accepted for a house. And I remember this one time in particular where they'd be like, we love you. We want you to move in. You know, I could show we had good credit, all rent, good rental history, everything. And they would say, but we got a phone call from one of the other applicants and they're both Amazon employees and they have more money. And so they want to pay 500 more a month in rent. Can you match it? And so we would get in these bidding wars as renters and it happened three times. And every time I was like, I can barely afford what you're charging. So we ended up finding a place to live. It took us like six months and it was this up and we had to move out of Ballard up into Greenwood and it was this house, incredible house. We loved it. We really wanted to move in. It was at the very top of our price range. And the woman had so many other applicants, same thing. She called and said, someone's willing to pay 700 more a month. Can you match it? And I was like, I just can't. So I ended up writing her this entire essay, like letter. And I mailed it to her and I said, please, like we are a family. My children go to school here. 
We're invested. We can't do this. We, we really can't afford it. Can you please choose Seattle as a community instead of people that are not invested in the community, even though you're making more money? And she was so touched by the letter that she said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I will accept you at a graduate. And then like in the, over the next year, you can graduate into $200 more a month. And so we ended up having a place to move in, but it was this really scarring, traumatic experience of like, we had the money we wanted to move in, but we kept getting outbid by renters. And so I do think that's changed a little bit, even though it's still hard to find as a renter. But I wonder, I'm really curious about on one hand, I'm like, wow, what does it mean for a third party to step in and say, you can't discriminate? And then to the other extreme of, I don't think we were getting discriminated against necessarily. Um, you know, I, to be honest, a lot of the reasons why people get discriminated against I, it's, you know, I'm a white, even though I'm a woman, I'm a white woman. I have a job. Like there's historical reasons why people in awful racial ways get discriminated against. And I don't have that against me, but also I was like, why can't we find a place to live? This is insane. Just the fact that I'm not as wealthy as other people I'm getting discriminated against. You know, you're describing the market, you know, it, it, it sounds cruel, but that's the way the market is. And, you know, I, I had, I had a tenant one time who, who subleased for a couple months, from this uh, other tenant. And uh, as he left after being there a couple of months, I said, well, how'd you like it here? And he says, oh, I loved it. It was a great location and it was cheap. Well, a landlord doesn't want to hear that from a tenant because you left money on the table. It's, it's a business and you want to, you kind of want to maximize your investment. There's all sorts of reasons why you, you might offer a rent lower, like the one you ended up with. And we do. But but there is a market rate, and you have to measure, you're constantly measuring yourself against the market rate. Otherwise, you're just, you're not conducting business in a proper way. You have a responsibility to know what the market rate is, and then at least know what it is, and then if you're not going to get that market rate, have a good reason for it. That's proper business. Otherwise, you won't succeed. Businesses have to succeed. And if, and if I don't succeed as a landlord, I end up having to sell because I'm giving away rent. Somebody else is going to buy it and they're going to run those prices right up to the market rate too. So there's, there's this natural force out there that is the market. Well, you know, that Doug's saying he, he was cheap, but he was also always like that. <laughs> you didn't raise the rent. <laughs> He, he he had a soft spot. I mean, we we have a tenant who's been in the house for thirty five years, and you know he's he's he eighty one years old, and so and his rent pays. is half what it should be. It's, you know, we okay. we have special situations like that. I mean, if we raise it to regular rent, he can't pay. He'd be I don't know where he'd go. So that's his home, and we respect that, and we carry him. We and that's a role that as a landlord we can do. As an owner, now, if you had a corporation owning that house, that property, yeah, and, and we're afraid, we're afraid to sell that building just because of him, <laughs> because we know that not very likely that somebody would be considerate, and we're even thinking if we do that to write it that they have to keep the rent for for him, which um, which devalues the property. Yeah, we wouldn't get as much because they're forced to only get this much income from that unit. I, I really appreciate y'all being so open about like what it means to be a mom and pop landlord. And in Seattle, I mean, it's obviously so much different than like having many more investments and having these like large apartment complex buildings and being these like very corporate landlords. Being a mom and pop shop in any sort of case, especially 
these days. I, I know like I have other family members who have their own small businesses and it's actually a really hard time to be a small business. COVID was really good for big businesses and really hard for, for the small businesses. But I, I actually had a conceptual question. How do you how do you feel about just the term landlord itself? It is kind of a pompous, but when I would go over to the properties and do my cleaning and I'd inevitably run into tenants and uh, taking care of the place and kind of identifying with the place, there, there is kind of a, a sense of power in a way. I mean, you're in charge, you know, whatever, whatever goes on there, you're, it's your decision. And there is a there is a little tiny element of the Lord part of that <laughs> that you don't you don't have to call a cop you don't have to call somebody else you don't have to call you know your boss what to do you do it you deal with it and so in a sense there is a responsibility there and uh, definitely you realize that when you own a property like that but you also have to it puts on you a responsibility to be fair and humane to your fellow human beings who happen to be your tenants. You, you know, I had, I had wonderful conversations and relationships with a lot of my tenants. But you are definitely a special person in that relationship. I've actually owned property before and been a landlord when I was in North Carolina. And so it's really been interesting being here and being on the other side of it where I can't afford it and I'm a renter. But it's interesting to me because there's something that psychologically happens to me where when I own something, I'm like, oh, I can renovate this thing or I can build this shelf or I can update this thing. And it's an update for me and I'm in control and I don't have to ask anyone and I own this. And being a renter, it's not so much that I'm like, feel like I can't do things or I'm scared of things. It's just like a psychologically different place where I'm like, I'm investing in something that's going to benefit someone else and not me. I have to ask permission. And the place that I live in right now, I really like it, but you can only sign a year's lease and then you go month to month. So there's been people here for 17 years that are still month to month, but it creates this environment where everyone's terrified of doing anything wrong. There's just always that feeling that I don't own this. I'm not the Lord of the land that I live on. But I think it's really interesting. It's this conceptual thing of that we're kind of getting to in this series is that there are laws, there are little practical things. And then there's also this feeling of being an owner or being a renter. This idea of like you have control of your life or you have someone else that's in control of your life. And that's a real thing that accompanies ownership on multiple levels. That's the nature of our economic system. And I think there's, there's something natural about that. If you're going to ask to inhabit somebody else's property you have you have a relationship with that person that you know needs tending to how do you feel about the fact that some people can't own though that that automatically sets people in a place where they have no choice but to be owned quote unquote by someone else you know there, i'm sure there's a large segment of people who aren't equipped or aren't inclined to own property you know when the when the faucet drips they call the landlord and that suits them and and maybe they don't have this um, creative sense that you have uh, that you want to express on your surroundings you know a lot of people they don't have that so there's a huge number of people who are insensitive to those things that you are sensitive to as far as the money goes, you know, these are life issues, you know, how much money you make and where you can be and those, I don't, to me, that's the natural course of life. I mean, obviously there are other factors, but 
you know, when I was coming up, I, I kind of realized that I needed to make a, a professional wage. So I, I went to engineering school after I'd already graduated from a, a liberal arts program because I wanted to make more money. It's as simple as that. And it turned out to be a good a good thing on many levels, not just a higher salary, but uh, it forced me into doing that. And, and I became a different person. But I knew early on that I needed that. Can I push that into a second question? Because I'm really curious about it. Because I think what you're saying is really interesting and true in a lot of ways. And I think about this in my own life. I could make more money if I didn't have ideas of what I wanted my life to be like. Like I could say if money was my most primary thing, I could get a job at a company that would pay me more. But because of the life choices I'm making, I'm choosing to have less money enough to get by right now for what I need. So I'm very aware of that. And I, I think like even on another level, I tell my friends all the time, you know, I'm a single mom and my friends that are older and they're like, I'm not married. I'm like, you could be, you could be married tomorrow. You're not married because you have an idea of who you want to marry and that's okay. But anyone can have the life that they need or want. It just might not be their ideal life. And so I, I totally agree with you on that. But I, there's this extra question that's really interesting to me. And that's about inheritance and inheritance tax. So one of my fr close friends, we have the same background. We did the same graduate program. We both have like sh work and make about the same amount of money. But I'm very aware that in the next 20 years, she's going to inherit a ton of money and property and I'm not. And suddenly having done the same amount of work, invested in the same amount of things in our lives, she will have so many more advantages than I will simply because she's inheriting it from her parents. And so I'm curious what you think about inheritance tax in particular. Should we have it? Should it be less? Should it be more? I, I don't like inheritance tax. I think it's, a, it's an overreach from the government. They can get their money someplace else. So it's not really about financing the government. It's about working the, the population. It's a social you know, I mean. Some people, some people, when they inherit a ton of money, it ruins their lives. They lose focus, they lose their way, and uh, it's a problem for them. But, but as far as somebody who has assets, yes, you want you want it to pass on to your children. Why, you know, of course. But it takes it out of a meritocracy. This idea that we're talking about—that if I want to own property, I could get a job, make more money, give up on some of my dreams. But my dream would be about investment, and that's fair. Like I think that that is a choice I can make—a choice that I'm making. But that is this, um, based on this idea of meritocracy. But then it shifts it into something different when that choice is then influenced by whether or not my parents have money and leave something to me. Then all of a sudden, it's not meritocracy, right? It doesn't matter how hard I work, I'll never end up with more money than my friend who's going to inherit a ton from her parents. Well, you know, it depends on, on what, how you look at life and how you want to approach life and how you want to spend your time. In life, one quote I like to use is that capital uh, needs tending to. It goes where it's taken care of. So this this friend of yours who's going to inherit this money, they need to tend to that capital. It takes time. It's a job. You have to look at bank statements. You have to think about where your risk is. Maybe I sell this. Maybe I buy that. It's, it becomes it becomes a whole thing. And if you don't tend to your property, your assets. They will get away from you. It may turn out that she can't deal with it. I don't know. You know, she's obviously going to be taking on another task in her world, in her life. When this happens, she's going to have to deal with it. But so, does she deserve to have that? Does she deserve it? Well, if the, we all got what we deserved, where would we be? But you know, do you think you could, they should be taxed? No, I don't think it should be taxed. 
Well, again, that's tax. That's tax policy. And if you want to talk about tax policy, then that's another issue. Irina, do you think it should be taxed? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, it's already been taxed. All the money that you inherit and, and you know, that you make, it's been taxed, uh, income. And, and so the, the state and the government already taxed that. And so when we were making money and or making in, investment choices, we wanted, we had our kids on mind. We wanted to leave something to the kids because it will make their life easier. And I don't think it's fair that if you make more money, that then you have to be that has to be taxed and, and that you don't have that option to leave your life worth to, to your kids. I don't know at which level, you know, maybe if you're leaving $300 billion, uh, a some inheritance, and, and that's what they do. I mean, there's different tax bracket for inheritance. The, more, the higher the estate, generally speaking, the more So there, there is some taxing already happening so there, there's a story the story that's out there I, i've been seeing lately is that uh, i think the biden administration is talking about messing with the income the estate taxes and uh, so the, the the comeback is that there are all these family farms and small businesses that if they raise the estate tax these family farms and small businesses would would cease to exist because they would have to sell them to because to uh, pay the estate tax. Because whoever inherits, uh, that's when it's taxed. <laughs> you know, people that die, they don't pay taxes. It's the in the, the people that their successors, we, their family or kids, have to immediately have to pay the government the tax. And sometimes the tax is not in money. I mean, it's easy if you have money, but what if you have an asset that you don't want to sell? And so let's say farm is worth uh, $3 million and they have to pay 50%. Tax? How are they going to? They will be forced to sell because nobody's going to have million and a half in taxes to pay. People think you know you inherit, but you inherit asset, and that asset is not necessarily dilute. You can't divide it or pay the taxes that easily. So it would trigger a lot of loss, or at least selling quickly, and and that sometimes happens already. You know, I grew up in the public education system. My parents were both teachers and I believe in public schools and I believe in our money going towards kids because not everyone has the same opportunities. Now I have a daughter, she's 14 and it comes time to go to her school. So she's going to a private school that she got a full scholarship, an incredible school. And I'm looking at it and I feel this conflict because I'm like, this school will undoubtedly give her advantages in life. I'm looking at the way they're educated, the opportunities they have, and she's surrounded by kids that have these opportunities, they have more money, there's so much money available for programs in the school. And I'm caught in this conflict of I'm giving her an undeserved advantage in life. And ethically, I struggle with that. But also, it's my kid. And I want her to have that opportunity. Why do you say it's undeserved? Because I gave her certain privileges and advantages that other kids didn't get from their parents. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's everywhere in everything. People are born with good parents. Is that undeserved? Because there's lots of people born with lousy parents. Yeah, I would say it's undeserved because there's nothing inherent about the kid that deserves good parents versus bad parents. And so it's just really complicated. And I think it's something that we hold as parents and as people that we have these ideas that we agree with. But then there's also like how it impacts us on a personal level. And I find myself conflicted by it. It's just a, 
a difficult thing to hold. And there's some areas where I'm like, all right, we're going to go without this thing because I love this phrase where it says, it may, it's not fair, but it's appropriate. And I struggle around this of like, yeah, maybe it's not fair, but maybe it's appropriate. And how do we hold that? And maybe it's inappropriate. I don't know. But my point is, is that I think people often land on one side or the other. And I think it's not as easy and cut and dry as we want it to be. That maybe some things that we choose are actually really unfair. But we love our, you know, I don't know. I I really don't know the answer. I, I don't like the idea of fairness. You know, life isn't fair. And people... People are born with physical problems. That's not fair. Or people have poor families or poor culture, bad cultures. I think in your case, if you have an opportunity to get a good education for your child, you should take it, be thankful, and move on. And, and, and if this issue that you describe continues, then you can take this nicely educated daughter of yours and maybe have her address those issues as her life goes forward and what maybe can be done about it. But as far as fair or not, that's, that's nothing for me, for you to worry about. I don't think you should count yourself lucky and uh, go with it. You know, I mean, what's the alternative force her into an inferior educational experience. That's the alternative for you. I wouldn't feel guilty about it. This, this kind of gets into this whole, white guilt thing, you know, all these white people have privilege and all that sort of thing. Well, I turn it around, you know, I don't call it privilege. I call it normal, a good education, a good family unit. That's all normal. And people who don't have that, they need to be brought up to that. But they're, they're turning the meme around and they're, you know, they're demonizing the white privilege. And that's the wrong way to go about it. They should be demonizing broken families and poverty and drugs and trying to bring those people up rather than to bring what I consider normal down. Do you think what you're saying is possible, though, to bring everyone up to the standard that some people get? That, that, should, should, be, that should be the impetus. That should be where the, the forces gather and try to move rather than the other way and rather than talk about the other way. They should be aspiring to what I call normal, because this is the way I grew up, and it seemed like normal to me, and it did to a lot of people. But these days, uh, they're making that look like a bad thing, which doesn't make any sense to me. That logic fails me. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you make it, you make you. us feel so smart. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. We are blessed. Well, I think it's, I really appreciate it because especially living in Seattle, it's such a charged conversation where I think oftentimes we don't get to have the conversation across the board by who's owning, who's investing, who's renting, who can find homes. And I think one of the reasons you asked earlier why we're doing this podcast, and for me, it's because I think if we can talk about things and bring enough people together that have different ideologies, different views, different perspectives, then maybe we can get somewhere we haven't been before. And so I really appreciate, especially in the context of Seattle, being able to talk to y'all about this. Well, it's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, mm-hmm. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast. 
where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sol. Mm-hmm.